Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org. Good morning. On Every Day is Earth Day this morning, I am talking with a man named Daniel Knowles, who hates cars, and he wants you to hate them too. Knowles is the Midwest U.S. correspondent for The Economist magazine, and he hates what the cars have done to the world and especially to our cities. He has written a book called Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It. Knowles' home is in Chicago where he lives without owning a car, which kind of amazes me. Good morning, Daniel. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. I love that introduction. It said you don't have a car and you're in Chicago. It kind of made me think, wow, how does he do that? And why did you come up with a book called Carmageddon? Obviously, you you are diehard and believe that cars are not needed. I mean, I don't think they're completely not needed. I think they're needed a lot less than we than we use them for. And living in Chicago without a car is really not that difficult because, you know, my wife and I, pick the neighborhood where we're close to a train line. Almost everything that we need, you know, sort of day to day is honestly within walking distance. And a lot of what I can do, what I need to do is on, you know, I go on my bicycle and we, you know, occasionally we need a car once every, I need them for work every now and again. And we need them, you know, for our kind of vacations and things every now and again. So we rent them, but we, you know, we spend an awful lot less money on cars than the average American, even even kind of renting them occasionally. And we're fine. You know, when we lived in London before, we almost never needed a car ever at all. So it's completely possible. But it's completely possible even in a city like Chicago. Okay, so we're in the Midwest and in the rural Midwest and things aren't really that as easy for us because we don't have a lot of good public transit and that sort of thing. So... How do you mm. respond to that? Because, I mean, frankly, we are a city of 50,000, which in Minnesota is actually pretty large. But to get anywhere, especially in the winter, it's tough. So what do you say to folks like us? Well, it's a challenge. I think when we're looking at smaller communities, you know, American cities especially, and especially smaller rural ones, have been built in such a way for such a long time that it's very difficult, you know, not only to not have a car, but to not sort of, you know, most families will have two or three and they need them sort of all of the time because everything's so far apart. And, you know, what my book is really an argument for is for making it easier for people to live in places where they they don't need a car or they don't need a car as much, you know. City centers, kind of dense neighborhoods in America are exceptionally expensive because people want to live in those places and they can't because we don't build enough of them. We build all this sort of sprawling neighborhoods where, where you really need a car. So the argument is that, you know, be it's, it's an option to, to I, I'd like people to have more options to need their car less. But even if you look at some of these, you know, very rural communities, if you go back 70 or 80 years, you know, there were interurban tram lines, train lines, bus lines, there were things that made it possible, perhaps, you know, cars would be, still be a useful thing to have, but so that you could make some journeys without them. And that's all kind of gone. And I think some of the reason it's gone is that everybody is so invested in their cars now that the sort of assumption is that everybody will have one. It's a kind of catch-22. You need a car because everybody's got a car. And so nobody builds anything in such a way that you can get by without a car. So that means you need a car. So it's this sort of circular logic that we're, we're trapped in, I think, in a lot of places. But, you 
you know, cars are an extraordinarily expensive thing for most mm -hmm. Americans, most people in general. You know, the average family spends about $12,000 running a car each year. And that's a huge amount of money that, that you know, that, that I think an awful lot of people would like to get some of that back if they had some alternative forms of transportation available. Now, you've written the book. It's called Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It. Where did this book begin for you? How did this idea come up to, to do such a book? Oh, gosh, it's been uh, something kind of percolating in my head for probably about 10 years. You know, as, as I imagine you can tell, I'm British. I grew up in Birmingham, which is the sort of car manufacturing city of the UK, historically. I moved to London, and one of the reasons I loved London initially was that, you know, I, I could get everywhere because I couldn't drive. I then later moved to the US, but before moving here to Chicago, I'd lived in Nairobi and Kenya and in Mumbai. And I think basically all of these places I'd lived in, I sort of saw how and wrote about how transport policy and how the way we build things affects how people live and how when we prioritize roads and those people who have cars and in Kenya it was a minority but they're still building all these roads it makes life harder to get around in any other way roads are this kind of particularly very wide fast roads mm -hmm. are a massive barrier to anybody who's a pedestrian or a cyclist or even who wants to use public transport so I sort of became obsessed basically with how how cities work and I noticed that you know the things that we consider mistakes here here in America and in Europe of you know, demolishing entire neighborhoods in big cities in the 1950s and 60s to build freeways right through the center of them. You know, pretty much everybody thinks that was generally a mistake now here, but those mistakes are still being made in the developing world. So that's sort of why I thought it was urgent and why I thought it was worth writing in part. But it, it looks at the whole world, this book. I, I really did roam around for it, which I've been very lucky to do in my job for The Economist. My youngest son, when he was 15, he's 16 now, but he came to me and said, Mom, why can't we just get along with just bicycles and walking? Why can't we make a city like that? And he did some studying with some, some cities in Europe and just has, he's, like I said, the, the younger generation and feels like that we can do this. And, you know, I give him credit for doing this research. So where are some places that has worked? Because he specifically talked about wanting to move to places where it's working, because that's what he would like. Well, there's lots and lots of places. You know, in the book, I write about some of the things that have happened in, in New York City, which has changed radically in the last 30 years. is the only place in America where, you know, a, a minority of, only a minority of people drive. But I also write about Paris, which has reduced the number of the amount of driving by something like 60% in the last kind of 20 years. It's about London, a bit about Tokyo. There's quite a lot of places. But, you know, talking to somebody in the, in the Midwest, even, you know, <laughs> Minneapolis is somewhere that's done a surprisingly good job of building bike lanes, you know, that can get you around. It's still a very spread out city. It's still a place where most people drive, obviously. But, but I've been able to get around Minneapolis without driving by using using a bicycle and i've met people who bike all through the winter there even um because if you get the right gear you can bike in 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 snow and and ice it's, it's not always pleasant but it's possible <laughs> no. so i think cities even like minneapolis can give people options you know even if they don't persuade most people to get out of their cars you know, one of the things you say in the book is that it's very American idea that cars equal freedom or independence. I think about my mom when she was got older and was no longer able to drive. That was a big deal for her because if she felt like she completely lost her independence. And I think that's a lot what people equate 
having a car with. So, I mean, how do you get past that mindset? Because it's sort of ingrained in us. I think that is a big challenge in that we have built a world where you do need a car to be independent. You have to be able to drive. You have to spend a lot of money owning one in, in much of much of the United States and indeed much of the rich world even. And, you know, so hearing about your, your mother, my, my grandmother is in a similar situation. She's very elderly. She can't drive. But she's very lucky to live in a neighborhood where she can kind of reach, you know, shops and a few restaurants and things on foot, even even at her kind of advanced age. And I think there's a growing problem that a lot of very elderly people, the number of people in their 80s driving in the United States mm-hmm. now exceeds the number of teenagers driving. Whoa. And a lot of these people, you know, are reaching an age where it's potentially dangerous for them to drive, where it's, you know, a bit nerve-wracking. Their relatives don't necessarily want them driving but they live in neighborhoods where it's really difficult to do anything without a car. And I think this is going to become a, you know, a big problem as the baby boomer generation, you know, which really did grow up with cars, which was the first kind of generation where everybody had a car and, and they live in places where, you know, you really need a car. As they're getting to ages where they can't have cars, we, we're going to face some problems there. So I think that's one of the reasons we do need to think about how can we have communities, you know, where you don't need to be able to drive, where people who can't drive or don't want to drive have other options. Well, how does that happen? Because, I mean, I think something, because of the way the infrastructure is now, it would require a huge shift in infrastructure to make this happen, which, of course, equals a lot of money. So people may say, well, that's too much. What do you say? Well, I think the first thing is that people are spending a lot of money on cars. So the infrastructure in the long run will save money. Uh, But I think there are quite subtle things you can do that make a big difference. You know, getting rid of things like the parking minimums. Some of the reason why parking is, why there is so much parking in American cities, why, you know, our cities are so spread out and you have these restaurants that have parking lots four times larger than the, the restaurant space is because the law says that you have to do that. And and, you know, it's very expensive for kind of land developers, mm-hmm. for, for anybody providing a service to, to build all these parking spots. An underground parking spot costs as much as $60,000 to build, mm-hmm. but we require it by law. So if we begin to reduce some of those kind of mandates, then, you know, just private enterprise will step in and provide options for people who aren't driving. So that's literally one of the easiest things we can do. There are also things like, you know, parking cash out. There's a whole ream of policies, basically, that we know work because they work in different parts of the country. They're working well, you know, some of them in Washington, D.C., some in in New York City, some, as I say, in in Minneapolis, of building bike lanes, of allowing new housing construction in dense neighborhoods. You know, we have an awful lot of kind of downtown areas where there's land that we could build more housing on already close to, to kind of restaurants and supermarkets and whatever else you might need in a walking distance. And we don't often with zoning laws allow that housing to be built. So if we loosen up, it, it will just get built. So, so I guess what I'm saying is there's an awful lot of things that we can do. And sometimes it's just changing the mentality and, you know, making people who drive as well realize that really there are people out there who don't want to drive as much there's a lot of them and so we don't need to build everything around the assumption that you know every single citizen equals at least one car you talk about bike lanes you know we have incorporated those in our city we're in a like i said a 50,000 which is in this area is a big city but I personally am terrified to use a bike lane just because you have all the cars around you. So, I mean, I think there's a fear of using them just because I don't know that cars pay attention 
to bicyclists. So how do you overcome that? Well, I think there's something that state departments of transport, you know, and transport traffic engineers really ought to be using the infrastructure they're designing because, you know, I go all over this country for work and so often you're in a smaller town or sometimes a bigger city and there is a bike lane, but the bike lane has, you know, no protection. Right. It's sort of surrounded on both sides with four or five lanes of traffic mm-hmm. and the speed limit's 40 miles an hour, so everybody's doing 50. And I think, well, that's nonsense. I would never use that, that <laughs> bike lane and neither would anybody else. And neither would the traffic engineer who presumably designed it. So I kind of think, you know, the infrastructure has to be designed with the people using it in mind. And so often bike lanes are designed as a sort of afterthought of, oh, we'll just put a bit of paint on this very wide road. And then inevitably nobody uses them. And then they go, well, look, we tried and nobody wanted it. But where you build bike lanes that are, you know, safe and protected, kind of segregated from traffic, they're incredibly popular. And there's, you know, there's very good evidence to that. I mean, they're happening, it's happening here in Chicago that they're building more and more protected bike lanes. And where the protected ones go in, the number of cyclists goes up a lot quickly. The Lakefront Trail here is one of the best used bike lanes, bike paths in the world, I think. So it's, so it's possible. But yeah, you have to think about it from the perspective of a cyclist, uh, and from somebody who's scared, because cars, cars moving fast are dangerous. Because I know there are lanes, but like you said, we have the ones where there's paint that shows this is the lane, so this is for the bike to go in. And we have a lot of trails around the community, you know, that are more for recreation. So you can get from, you know, to the park, to another beautiful place. So that's the kind of thing we've got a lot of, which are great. And I don't mind riding on those, but how do you incorporate, like you said, in Chicago, that it's a part of the transportation to get from one place to another where you want to do business, to buy something and that sort of thing versus just recreational? Oh, I think that it, you basically just need to have something that looks like the recreational trail, but it goes through a neighborhood, oh. you know, so it's maybe not completely like the recreational trail because that might be surrounded by trees and, you know, whatever. It might still be on the road, but you might have concrete barriers or, or bollards or something that, that separates it out and you see these in in more and more bigger cities and indeed in some smaller cities there's a city um in indiana that they went to called carmel that has you know more and more bike lanes that um that one that goes through it's a little and it's a suburb of indianapolis it's not big but it has a bike lane that goes right through its center and the cars are are slowed down near it so essentially a lot of it's to do with the managing of the cars near the bike lanes if you can put barriers that separate it or you can slow the traffic down next to those those bike lanes, people will use them and they can, you know, you, it doesn't have to be every single road that has a bike lane. If you have one main, you know, tributary that, that has one, there are lots and lots of different ways of doing it, basically. One of the things they've done in New York City is alternate blocks for cars. So a block mm-hmm. is one way, you know, and then it changes direction. So you can drive into the block and there's generally residential areas. You can drive in if you're a resident or if you're delivering something, that sort of thing, but you won't drive through. But if you're a cyclist, you can go all the way, you know, through that road. And because you won't be encountering any through traffic, it feels completely safe, even though it is shared with cars. So there are different ways of doing it. But basically, yeah, it's about making sure that if there are vehicles around, they're not going really fast, basically. Now, Daniel, in your book, you quote Pete Buttigieg as saying that we need to think about bikes, wheelchairs, scooters as much as we do about planes, trays, and automobiles. So if you could have his job for a day, what would you do as the Secretary of Transportation? 
Oh, um, uh, I mean, I actually think he generally is trying to do quite a good job, but I will go through every single project at the moment that is being funded by the Infrastructure Act um, and look for projects where state departments of transit are widening freeways, sort of expanding roads and go, hang on a minute, do we really need to do this? Because there are so many projects led by this kind of traditional engineer mentality of more roads is always better that I think is often wrong. And I think that's the that's a very tricky thing to change from the top. But that that's what, you know, I'd hope the Department of Transport is doing with this huge amount of money there the federal government's making available right now for for, for infrastructure improvements. You know, we don't need to widen every road. And in fact, if we're putting a load of money in, maybe we can put in a bike lane or we can put in a, a separated bus lane. That's one of the things that a lot of cities could do very well, very cheaply. And in fact, it'll save them money because their buses will go around quicker. So each, you know, and so people will use them more as well. So that sort of thing is what I would be doing. But I don't know how much you can do in one day, unfortunately. Now, in our city, we've got, we do have some bus routes, but they are so poorly used that every time you see a bus go by, there's, you know, one or two people on it. It's not like in the big cities or like you see lots Mm. of people crowded on there. So I just think we are a community that doesn't know or doesn't get it. So I don't know how to change that. And I guess I'm I'm preaching to the choir because that's what you want to happen. But I don't know how that happens. I think, you know, if I'm going to be, if I'm completely honest, you know, the bulk of Americans, the majority live in very, in large cities. And that's where the low hanging fruit is. That's where we can, you know, with relatively minor changes, make it possible. Even in somewhere like Los Angeles for a family who right now might be running two cars that they, you know, that, that that's costing them a lot of money to be able to get by with one, that sort of thing. Mm. So I think that's where the low hanging fruit is. It's got to be a long time really before we can make, you know, small smaller, more rural communities, smaller cities, places where, you know, where, where people feel that they don't need a car. But, you know, bike lanes and particularly things like e-bikes are where I have hope there. You know, I meet more and more Americans in suburbs, for example, who have been buying e-bikes to pick up their kids from school. Because even in smaller towns, a lot of the journeys people are doing are two or three miles. And those are the kinds of ones that are ripe to be replaced. If you're, if you're commuting 20 miles to, to work, you know, and, and there isn't a train, no, we're not going to be able to replace that. And, and people are still going to need their cars for that. But there's a lot of smaller journeys that, that maybe we can around the edges. I think we just have to look at each place individually and see what can be done and and the big cities are where the big opportunities to reduce our car use are but but, you know there are things that can be done but yeah it will take time you mentioned e-bikes and that's something that's relatively newer here that not a lot of people have it yet and i think maybe that if people tried them maybe it'd be more palatable to do some of these longer trips because frankly when you have hills and things like that it can be a little daunting what is your experience with e-bikes and is that the way you think that's it's going to go just rather than just the regular pedal bikes oh i i think they're potentially transformational i actually bought my own first e-bike for about a week ago i've been oh. you know using some of the rented ones for a long time and obviously i've had a normal bicycle for you know forever really but i bought my first e-bike and And I discovered something that research shows, which is that when people get an e-bike, they increase the amount they cycle enormously because it's so much less effort. You know, I would happily go three or four miles on my own bike 
before. Yeah, which covered a lot of journeys. But if I had to go sort of seven or eight, you sure. know, that's quite tiring. You'll turn up sweaty and, you know, sort of exhausted. And, and you don't really want to do that. But on my e-bike, what I've discovered is I can do these journeys, get off and, and feel basically as, as though I've sort of strolled around the corner. And in Chicago, which is obviously you know, a dense city with a lot of traffic, sure. it's usually faster than driving would be. That's not the case everywhere, but here, where, you know, where, where traffic moves very slowly most of the time. I, you know, an e-bike's the fastest way of getting around. So I think that will drive, in fact, it is driving adoption. You know, there are more e-bikes have been selling in the US recently than, than electric cars. And I see them more and more in my neighborhood. You know, people, parents kind of carrying their kids to daycare on them, that sort of thing. So the, the big challenge is the safety aspect. Sure. But if we can sort of fix that, they, they really open up a lot of journeys that you can do that currently people would do with a car and might be a bit reluctant to do with a, you know, a normal, unpowered bike. So I, I'm, I'm very hopeful about e-bikes. How practical are they in the winters? I mean, I don't, I'm sure they're improving like everything else. You know, we have the issues with batteries here in, the, in Minnesota, and when the cold hits it, of course, they don't last as long. Are e-bikes improving? And, and like you said, you just got yours, so maybe you don't have that experience yet to talk about. Oh, the great difference with an e-bike battery compared to an electric car battery is you, you know, it doesn't weigh very much. So you can take it off. Most e-bikes, you just attach it from the bike and bring it indoors. And so it's not getting, you know, freezing cold overnight and and then going flat and not being usable. So they work quite well. I mean, they have the same issues that electric bikes or that all sorts of bikes have in the winter. You know, they're not very nice in, in very horrible weather. And it's mostly a question of having the right gear. And there will be people who will never be persuaded compared to the sort of comfort of a heated car. And I get that yeah but there are are people who really do embrace it you know it's it's nice it's exercise it's out in the outdoors and uh and and there are people you know i've met people in minnesota who who are absolute lunatics in terms of cycling and (laughs) weather that that even i a kind of lunatic myself would consider ridiculous you know well below zero degrees and they've got these studded tires so and i'm not saying that everybody will do that but i think they they can work pretty well you know copenhagen is a city where they have really quite terrible weather they get more snow than they do here in chicago in fact or more snow days and yet you know the vast majority of people use bikes there so it's so it's also possible it's, it's mostly about having the right equipment and ideally having neighborhoods where you know you're not biking that far because yeah if you're going 20 miles it's uh, also a bit unpleasant so yeah in your book carmageddon what do you hope people take away after reading it? I mean, obviously, you talk about what's wrong with the car culture. You know, we, we know that. So what do you hope people take away? Well, I think what I hope that people will take away is that it can be changed and that things can change quite quickly and that if people make an effort, you know, they, they lobby their local politicians, they actually do go out on a bicycle or they start using the buses and they, they fight for that, Change will happen. In fact, one of the things I've been quite inspired by since I've lived in in America is that this country obviously has such an extraordinary number of local governments, and sometimes it feels like, you know, it's very difficult to get things done. But the groups I've I've met here and encountered who kind of advocate in the political system for change and get stuff done because they point out, you know, we're voters too, and politicians have to listen to them. It, it does work. American democracy does work. And basically, if people are persuaded, they can make change. I'm, I'm quite kind of... Uh, 
a believer in that. So I'm really just trying to, I guess like the book, I'm hoping to do two things. I'm hoping to give ammunition to the people who already sort of, you know, agree with me, who already see this, this problem to help kind of outline some of the history and some of the policies. And then I'm hoping for people who might be on the edge, you know, people who do drive, but sort of are grumpy about it or don't haven't quite realized why they find their commute so miserable that sort of thing to sort of come around to my side of things i recognize i'm not going to persuade you know the guy who absolutely loves his sort of ford f-150 um and thinks that <laughs> yeah. bicyclists are you know the enemy he, he's not going to be persuaded by my book but i think a lot of people who see their car payments going out every month and you know sit in a traffic jam every morning being stressed out who do think this kind of sucks and perhaps haven't thought about why it sucks but hopefully if they read my book they might begin to think hang on this isn't actually necessary we can do things differently now you are the midwest u.s correspondent for the economist magazine so you talk money and one of the the things that you say in your book is did you know that for the average American college student, getting to and from school accounts for 20% of their overall education costs, which, you know, that's a big concern is the cost of education and that sort of thing. So maybe if we talk about the dollars and cents, do you have any dollars and cents examples that might make people think twice about owning two cars or driving so yeah, much? I mean, that, that is one of the ones, you know, the, the college costs. Another one, you know, the poorest, poorest fifth of Americans spend around a quarter of their income on transportation. It's extraordinary. The average American spends, you know, more than 13, 14%, something like that. So it's an astonishing amount of money that everybody's spending. That's the first one. And that's going up as well. You know, cars are getting less affordable. Interest rates are obviously higher. So car loans cost more. And the, the new cars on the market are much more expensive. So I think it's going to become more challenging for people to run cars. Something that another thing that sort of fits is that, that fits is, you know, people often think that somewhere very sprawling like Houston is a cheap place to live because the cost of housing is quite low. And they think that New York City is a very expensive place to live because the cost of housing is obviously very high. And on the face of it, that's true. But the, if you look at how much people spend on transportation and housing combined as a share of their income. People in Houston spend more than people in New York City. Oh. You know, you spend more on rent living in New York City, but you save a hell of a lot by not having a car and not needing one. So I think kind of just, you know, everybody knows how much their cars cost and realizing that, that, that they could get by without that at the moment, you know, is, is, it's something that, yeah, I think is, you know, with, with, with times as they are, with inflation having kind of ravaged everybody's income you know, filling up the car each day and paying your car insurance and your, your your car loan payment. You know, everybody can kind of imagine if I didn't have to do that, how much more money I'd have left over. So, so on the straight economics, I kind of think that, you know, even before we get into everything else, which is how much money the government is spending on our behalf on roads, which they can't spend on, you know, social services, on parking spaces, how much it raises the cost of literally everything we do to be so dependent on our cars because it does just the direct spending is so much already and we we could just all be american americans are so rich compared to you know people in other countries but genuinely one of the reasons they don't feel rich a lot of the time is because they're having to spend so much of this money on running 
cars, basically. I think that's the big kind of argument I'd make. We are talking with Daniel Knowles, the author of Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It. Where can people find your book or find out more information about what you're talking about today? Um, so I think it's pretty widely available. It's certainly on Amazon. And, uh, you know, most booksellers will be able to get it for you if they don't have it in stock. So you could also find my writing in The Economist. And I'm on Twitter and Blue Sky and lots of other social media. But yes, if you search for Daniel Knowles Calm Again, you'll find it. Daniel, I appreciate your time. And I thank you for your time here on KMSU Radio. Well, thank you ever so much for having me on. Take care. Bye-bye. Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union. With two locations in Mankato since 1934, it pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA. More at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org.